I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Today we have a very special guest joining us, author and breeding specialist Patrick McKeown. Patrick is the author of the acclaimed book The Oxygen Advantage and has dedicated his career to understanding the profound impact of proper breeding techniques on health and athletic performance. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. It shouldn't be all about pushing ourselves to the absolute limit. And I know there's times that we do it, and I do it as well with my own work here. But recovery is vitally important, and breathing will impart that. Do you train your cyclists how to concentrate? And our education should have done it, but hasn't done it. You know, we go through 14 years of formal education. We are trained how to think, but we are not trained how to stop thinking. Talk to me about why that is an insult and what is the difference between someone who's a mouth breeder and a nose breeder? Well, I think the mouth breeder traditionally was the village idiot. (laughs) Patrick, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thanks very much. Patrick, there's a saying, an expression that I've heard often, we write the book we need. Was there a moment where you were reading papers where you read a piece of scientific evidence and this kick-started the idea of I need to write the oxygen advantage? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I came into breeding uh, back in 1998 after reading, it was either the Irish Independent or the Irish Times and it was about the work of a Ukrainian doctor, Konstantin Buteko and he said two things. He said, breathe through your nose and he said, breathe light. Now I was doing neither of those things. (laughs) <laughs> I was a chronic mouth breather. I always had my mouth open during sleep. I was waking up feeling exhausted. I was a heavy snorer. I was told I was stopping breathing. My concentration was fact. And of course, we all have our own story. But I started doing those two things that he said. And it made a huge difference in my life. I had a similar background to you. I did business economics and social studies in Trinity. So I did have that kind of background. I was in the corporate world. I hated it, to be honest with you. I didn't like the whole pressure on top of people, the treadmill, but it wasn't just the company I was working for. It was my my own physiology. You put a mouth breather and a faster breather and an upper chest breather and somebody who's uncomfortable with their breathing patterns into a stressful situation, they're not going to cope. So anyway, I changed careers. I did train under Dr. Buteko. I come back, I was teaching full-time since 2002, mainly asthma, anxiety, sleep disorders. But I learned a lot of experience working with these people, Um, one-on-ones a lot, small groups. And this is when you really learn about breathing. When you're seeing the transition of people applying breathing techniques over a number of weeks and you're following up with them. So it gave me a major amount of experience. Now, I made plenty of mistakes, but I was able to tweak the approaches then, especially with people prone to panic disorder and anxiety. So anyway, how did Oxygen Advantage come about? Post-crash here, I started putting out small courses for people with breathing and mindfulness, bringing the two together. I felt that mindfulness wasn't enough, even though it's brilliant. Why not address functional breathing? Why not change the physiology of the person? Teach them how to self-regulate. Teach them how to down-regulate. And if they want, how to up-regulate. And bring in mindfulness. But we use mindfulness as the hook. Because even back in 2010, nobody really wants to know about breathing. Yeah. So I gave courses around the country, Anthony, Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Galway. 3,000 people attended over the three years. 90 to 95% of them are female. So I was thinking to myself, where are all the men? Men were, of course, they were suffering with anxiety. 
And of course, they were suffering with depression and they were suffering with panic disorder, but yet they weren't attending a breathing class. So that's my oxygen advantage. I asked, what sort of breathing technique can I, can I create that's going to be appealing for the normal individual on the street? No ropes, no beads, none of the nonsense and none of the crap that normally goes with breathing because there's so much crap that goes with breathing that puts people off. And I wanted a breathing technique that was going to give physical and mental performance to the user, but no baggage with it. In other words, a person would be proud about doing it. Now, in the interim of supplying and getting these exercises across to improve mental performance, we also were bringing quietness to the mind. Because in order to improve mental performance, you have to impart a person to be able to have some degree of control over their thinking. They have to be able to improve their sleep. They have to know how to downregulate. They have to know how to upregulate. They have to know how to control states. And by doing that, we can address anxiety. We can address panic disorder. We can help with depression. We can help with sleep disorders. But I'm not doing it to help those things. I'm helping to improve focus and concentration. So circle it right back for me, because I know there's a bunch of people right now and they feel like someone's spraying them with a fire hose in the face. They're like, what the hell is going on? I didn't even know I had a problem breathing. You know, we have this different categories of stuff, the stuff we know, the stuff we don't know, and the stuff we don't even know we don't know. For a lot of people listening to the podcast right now, this is the first time they will ever have even considered that they may have a problem with their breathing. And I know when I was a kid, I used to call my sister a mouth breather, I didn't think there was any, like, it was an insult, but I didn't know why it was an insult. It's still an insult. Yeah, but I don't think most people know why it's an insult. So maybe starting off to, you know, preface a lot of the amazing, you know, work that you've done, talk to me about why that is an insult and what is the difference between someone who's a mouth breeder and a nose breeder? Well, I think the mouth breeder traditionally was the village idiot. <laughs> That's why I used to call my sister one, I think. Well, but I've often <laughs> wondered where does it come from, you know? Like, I'm just thinking of the small, the small country town and you have the mouth breeder going around and they have lesser intelligence. And unfortunately, that does happen. You know, people with lesser intelligence are more prone to mouth breathing. And I, of course, I don't want to upset anybody by saying that, but it's, it's a question that I have wondered. Now, you could also argue this way. Cognitive function is impaired with mouth breathing versus nose breathing. There's studies to back that up. And if we think of the mouth, what does the mouth do to breathing? It does nothing. It's a hole. So you think of your lads on the bikes, they're huffing and panting. They're taking cold, dry, unfiltered air into their lungs. Their upper chest breathing will reduce recruitment of the diaphragm. If they're hyperventilating on the bike, which some of them may do because that's influenced by their everyday breathing, it's going to impair their blood circulation and oxygen delivery. Their recovery post-physical exercise is going to be worse. They're more likely to have exercise-induced bronchial constriction. And also the connection between the nose and the brain via the olfactory nerve. So there's a huge amount of stuff going on. Think about visual spatial awareness. You know, we as hunters primitively, we'd be out, say, out in a wide open space. We had our eyes on the target, but we were also scanning the environment around us. Now you think of about 10 or six, ten or 20 cyclists. They have their eyes on the target, but they're scanning everything around them. That's visual spatial awareness. That improves with nose breathing. Now, of course, I'm not going to say, because I know the question that's going to come up is, should we have our mouth closed during all intensity of exercise? Absolutely not. It's not possible. But we should be breathing through our nose during low to moderate intensity exercise for two simple reasons. It adds an extra load to your breathing from a biochemical point of view and from a biomechanical point of view. When you breathe through your nose, 
carbon dioxide is not able to leave the body so quickly through the lungs. So it accumulates in the lungs, it accumulates in the blood, and carbon dioxide is the drive to breathe. So if you expose your body to high carbon dioxide, you improve your body's tolerance of the gas and your ventilation during physical exercise improves, it reduces. So it means then that there's more gas left in the tank. Now, the second factor is the biomechanics. We think of our breathing muscle. If we have poor strength and function of the diaphragm, the main breathing muscle, we're more prone to dyspnea or breathlessness. Now, you think of a cyclist. You're training your legs. You're training different parts. You're doing different exercise routines, but you're not training the very thing that's responsible for your breathing. And that's your diaphragm. And there's more to the, it's not just about the biomechanics. Like when, when I think about this transition from being a mouth breather to being a nose breather, uh, there's three main activities that my 24 hours comprises of non-exercise periods, exercise periods, and sleep periods. So you're saying we can't, it's not practical to nose breathe for, you know, a VO2 max intensities maybe on the bike, but at lower intensities, it's possible. And during the day, it's possible. And at sleep, it's possible. Now, I know I've had James Nestor on the podcast. And as a result of having James Nestor on it, my bedside locker is just a patchwork of masking tape from taping my mouth every night. But I even find I'll, I'll take my mouth, but in the morning, I'll wake up and the tape is off. So obviously, my body is fighting to breathe through my mouth. Is there a way to mitigate this? So coming back to your first question in terms of VO2 max, there's been a couple of papers by George Dallam. He's a pretty well-known triathlete coach in the United States. And he became interested because he got a triathlete breathing through their nose during all intensity exercise. And he found that it could be done, but it takes a bit of work. So when you start switching to nasal breathing initially, there's an extra load. You feel increased air hunger. But the more you continue breathing through your nose during physical exercise, the air hunger diminishes. Now, of course, your ability to exercise at full intensity is going to be influenced not just by your chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide, which is the driver to breathe, but also by your nose side. Sorry, what, what, what's chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide? What's that mean for a layperson? So basically, carbon dioxide is the gas that produces a byproduct of our metabolism. So you're moving your muscles, you produce a lot of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is going from the tissues into the blood, and it's brought back to the lungs where the excess is exhaled. If we have a poor tolerance of CO2, the CO2 then from the lungs into the blood, if we have a reduced tolerance or a strong sensitivity to carbon dioxide, it means that our breathing is harder and faster. So say, for example, I look at somebody sitting down there and I look at their breathing and I see that their breathing rate is a little bit faster than normal. I see that it's a little upper chest. I see that they don't have a natural pause after exhalation. I see that they may be sighing a little bit. These are all traits that we look at with dysfunctional breathing. Now, there's a very easy way to measure it. And we've been using a breath hold time test for about 20 plus years. And I'll just give you the instruction, Anthony. You take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and you pinch your nose to stop breathing. And you time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe? And then you let go and you resume breathing. But when you let go, your breathing should be fairly normal. So it's not your maximum breath, breath hold time. Now, Professor Kyle Kiesel, who is Professor of Physical Therapy from, I think it's Evansville University in the United States, he looked at 51 individuals. He measured their breath hold times. He looked at their breathing from a biochemical, biomechanical, and psychophysiological point of view. He concluded, if your comfortable breath hold time is greater than 25 seconds, 
there's an 89% chance that your breathing is functional. 25 seconds. Now, we were working with athletes during the week with breath hold times of nine seconds. So what's the implications of this? It means that their breathing is inefficient. It means that for them to achieve anything that they do during physical exercise, and by the way, these were international athletes. These are at a high, high level. That they are really pushing their body to the extremes, but there's an easier way to do that because you're breathing on the bike and you're breathing during physical exercise is influenced by your breathing off the bike. So what sort of performance gain are you looking at for those guys? So if someone, if you take someone from a dysfunctional breathing of nine seconds to what you'd call functional breathing of a 25-second hold, how is that translating into performance for them in their chosen sport? In terms of cycling, I don't have it offhand. Um, there's a few different things in terms of breathing. Like It's difficult to quantify it, but I will say this. It can make a significant difference. I look at George Dallams. Now, he was working with recreational athletes. He got 10 recreational athletes in one study. He had them breathe through their nose exclusively during for six months. He then had them do a graded exercise test with nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. With nose breathing, the fraction of expired oxygen was less. In other words, the body utilized oxygen better. With nose breathing, they did with 22% less ventilation. Now, 22% less ventilation for the same intensity of physical exercise when trained to breathe through the nose. So you can think of this then in an endurance. You know, we have to be economical with what we are doing. And if we are breathing too hard and too fast, too much oxygen is going to support the breathing muscles. That's a waste. But this is the thing. Nobody considers their everyday breathing and how it's going to impact their breathing during sports. But there's more than this to this, Anthony. Let's look at rep repeated sprintability. So you have a guy on the bike, they're heading, they're coming close to the finish line, and it's an outright burst, high intensity of exercise, repeated sprint, or at least it's the sprint finish. George, who no, it wasn't George, but it was Wurons in France, W-O-O-R-O-N-S. He got elite rugby union players. Okay, it's rugby, different sport, but he had them, he split them into two groups. He had one group do 40-meter sprints with normal breathing for four weeks, and he had the other group do 40-meter sprints on an exhale, breath hold, which we do, for four weeks. He then measured their repeated sprintability after four weeks. The group who did the breath hold improved their repeated sprintability from 9.8 reps to 14.8 before exhaustion. It's massive. Now, these are elite rugby union players, and I'll send you on these papers. So breathing isn't just about, I know in terms of there's a thing out there about breathing, that breathing is breathing. Listen, breathing is so varied. It depends what you want to tap into. You know, in terms of improving endurance, improving anaerobic capacity, improving sprint capacity, but then you have the whole aspect, the other aspect of it, the mental focus. You know, it's there's so much that can be done. Once, once you can tap different breathing techniques to suit the individual that you have in front of you. I'm right into the meat of the season at the moment. I finished the Ross. That's in my rear view mirror now. And I was moving super well. I was very competitive despite my protracted absence from that level of racing. Now, I don't want to fall into the trap that I see many riders falling into. Just riding around with no focus or aim and meeting up with friends and having coffee simply because the good weather has arrived. I'm continuing to use my Watt bike 
almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way through to my target events. I can't wait for the Rift and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be continuing my partnership with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's in my recording studio right beside the new desk. And if I have an hour between interviews, I jump on. It removes all the friction points. I've no more 10 minutes set up, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, no more connection issues. It just works every single time. Adam's perfect for Zwift racing too. I have the big TV set up here and I love those crisp gear changes. It has 1% power accuracy and a max gradient capability of 25%, even if my legs don't have a 25% max gradient capability. Even when I'm over there riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding the custom gearing setup. If you get a Watt bike, definitely play around with that. It's so suitable for those really hilly Watopia stages. If you're looking for an indoor bike trainer, I couldn't recommend this any higher. It's the very last indoor bike trainer that you're ever going to need. Absolutely phenomenal. If you head on over to whatbike.com and you use the code ROADMAN10 at checkout, you're now going to get 10% off the Whatbike Adam. So that's ROADMAN10 at checkout and you're going to get 10% off the Whatbike Adam. All the details for that offer are in today's show notes. What are the challenges that you see people having with trying to change from mouth breathing to nose breathing? Like practically, how are they, you know, how are they remembering to nose breathe all day long? Is it a taping system? Is there some other sort of gadgetry they're using to stop themselves mouth breathing? Well, they have to first think that their mouth does nothing, only that the mouth is a hole. You know, when you start becoming a little bit aware of what the mouth does versus the nose, the nose is not just the two holes in the face. There's so many reasons, you know, the first thing I always go is a little bit of theory. I think the science is really important with breathing because breathing has been let down the way it has been taught for decades. We have to bring the science to it and we have to show exactly what's happening. I'll give you this. Improved oxygen uptake in the blood by 10%. That was discovered in 1988 with continuous nasal breathing. If you do physical exercise with your mouth closed, carbon dioxide increases in the blood and carbon dioxide is not just a waste gas that people talk about. Your blood vessels dilate and there's increased oxygen delivery to the working muscles. If you do breath holds as part of your training, you're dropping your blood oxygen saturation, you're increasing carbon dioxide, you're disturbing blood gases, you're improving the body's buffering capacity to delay lactic acid and fatigue. So when I talk about breathing to somebody, I want to give them the background and I want to base it on the sciences of best available. Because this is the one industry that has a lot of misinformation. And we have to go back to basics here. The nose is there on the face for a reason. Dr. Morris Cottle, an ENT from the United States, back in the 1950s, he said that the human nose is responsible for 30 functions. Now, I can't find his list. But a few months ago, I said, well, sure, we might as well put our own list together. And we put a list together for 30 functions for the nose. Now, just as there's 30 functions for the nose, there's also probably 30 and more disadvantages to mouth breathing. Poor sleep, increased snoring, increased obstructive sleep apnea, activation of the fight or flight response, reduced recruitment of the diaphragm. So you think of the guy on the bike, biomechanically, from a breathing perspective, their posture is impacting because of the posture that you're on when you're on the bike. We really do need a strong diaphragm. Mouth breathing typically engages more of the upper chest. You know, so, and like even the whole thing of cyclist cough, 
A cyclist goes out for a long race. Two days later, they're still feeling that their, their chest is just not quite right because of airway narrowing due to mouth breathing with cold, dry, unfiltered air coming into the lungs and the lungs not being able for it. And the list goes on. Get that a lot on velodrome. I've had that, we call it velodrome lung, where you're going so deep on these pursuit efforts, four-minute style efforts on a cold, unheated velodrome typically. Uh, Because, you know, for events, it's warm in the evenings, but for training, it's cold in the mornings doing these efforts. And you come back, it, it almost feels like you have a chest infection for the week after one of these efforts. Yeah, and there's a way then to help get the breathing back into recovery then as well. You know, from from not just even from an asthma point of view, but from a, a bronchoconstriction, exercise-induced bronchoconstriction point of view. So I don't know. Like when I look at breathing, I look at the, the power of it. And I think James Nestor has done a tremendous work. And what he's included is what we've been trying to get out there for 20 years. He's just a brilliant writer. He was, he was able to convey it better than I was. You know, but he's been great because he has really put it out there. And he's a scientific journalist, you know, so he was there to back it up. So if you were creating a protocol for somebody who's a mouth breather now to transition them across, what would that look like? I would show them how to decongest the nose, first of all. I would try and find out, is there a reason why they have their mouth open? Is it because of nasal obstruction or is it because of habit? Normally it's both. So to decongest the nose, once you're not pregnant, once you don't have any serious medical conditions, take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold, and just gently jog up and down holding your breath. And keep doing it until you feel a moderate air hunger. Then let go and breathe in through your nose. Do it again, but do it a little bit longer. Do it again and do it longer again. So in other words, to open up your nose, you need to hold your breath for between a moderate to strong air hunger. And this activates a stress response. And by activating a stress response, it opens up the nose. Now, the more you breathe through your nose, the better it works. But people will mouth breathe if they feel uncomfortable breathing through their nose. And then we have to ask, why do you feel uncomfortable breathing through your nose? Is there a problem with the nose or is there a problem with your breathing pattern? If we have a habit of breathing a little bit faster and a little bit harder, we are trying to bring in too much air, even during rest, in through the nose, and it creates a resistance to breathing. See, our nose creates a resistance to breathing that's two to three times that of the mouth, but that is beneficial. Because when you breathe through your nose, the resistance created by your nose slows down the air. In actual fact, you breathe deeper into the lungs. As I said, you've got better recruitment of the diaphragm. But also in the exhalation, you're having that slow and relaxed exhalation out through your nose. It is a calming effect on the mind. We think about sports. We have to think about recovery. It shouldn't be all about pushing ourselves to the absolute limit. And I know there's times that we do it, and I do it as well with my own work here. But recovery is vitally important. And breathing will impart that. Our sponsor today is Caldera Lab. As road men, we're out in all sorts of weather. And I have to say, I've really started to notice the effects of that exposure. I'm just spending too much time in the elements and the sun, the wind and the rain, and it's taken an effect. More fine lines, wrinkles and visible signs of aging. When I look into the mirror some days, it's like my dad's face is looking back at me. Over the past six months or so, I've been looking to optimize all aspects of my health and I've really focused on finding a solution to this exposure. I'm obviously not going to stop riding my bike. The culmination of my research is being Caldera Lab. 
I started using this product as a customer because of the depth of clinical trial data showing that this stuff really works. And I have to say, I chased them super hard to get these guys on board as a show sponsor. So how it works is they have three products and you use them in the morning and then again in the evening. The first one is the Clean Slate, which is a balancing cleanser that uses gentle plant-based cleansing, leaving your skin feeling exceptionally refreshed. The second one is the Base Layer, and this is a nutrient-dense moisturizer which hydrates your skin. And the third one is called The Good, and this is a serum which helps your skin to look younger, tighter, and smoother. The combination of these three makes up your morning and evening routines. We have an exclusive offer for our audience so you can try this for yourself and you don't have to take my word for it. You can get 20% off with our code, which is simply ROADMAN. Head on over to calderalab.com forward slash roadman and use that discount code to unlock your youthful glow and be ready for the summer. I'm going to leave that discount code and link to Caldera in today's show notes. So I was doing uh, some intervals yesterday and I knew we were chatting today. So I had some eight minute efforts to do at 350 watts, which is kind of, you know, it's a sub threshold effort for me. And I was like, I'm going to try entirely nose breed these. And gone from probably no consciousness around my breeding when I'm like, it's probably a combination of nose and mouth breeding when I'm riding along to jumping in doing a 350 watts. I just couldn't hold. I, I I couldn't maintain that effort. It was just an overwhelming urge to breathe through my mouth at that intensity. So is it a case of graded adaptation where I need to go out and ride at 200 watts for you know periods of 10 minutes, the same way you'd build it up like an interval physically? It's going to depend, Anthony, on the person. I wouldn't even give numbers. But what I would say is any rider that's getting on the bike, cycle at a pace at which you can sustain comfortable nose breathing. Now, during that time, your nose is going to be running. So prepare for that. Allow your nose to determine your pace and push it to a point that it feels a slight bit uncomfortable, but not to the point that it gets too much for you. And if you continue doing it, and I know competitive athletes, though, I wouldn't ask them to do it 100% because they will be keen on being able to push themselves so they don't lose muscle condition. But a recreational athlete, Do all of your physical exercise with your mouth closed. Initially, it's tough. This is the training load. But within about six to eight weeks, your body will adapt to the increased carbon dioxide in the blood. See, the reason that you felt it was so excruciating was because you're really pushing yourself. Your metabolic rate is up. Your production of carbon dioxide is up. And carbon dioxide isn't able to leave the body quickly enough. So the primary driver to breathe, of course, there are are other drivers to breathe. But the primary driver to breathe is the gas carbon dioxide. And by breathing out through your mouth, you're able to get rid of carbon dioxide from the body. So that's the whole aspect of it, which was when you breathe out through your nose, you're not able to, carbon dioxide is not able to leave the body quickly enough. So as carbon dioxide was accumulating in your lungs, it was accumulating in the blood leaving the lungs, and you're feeling that increased sensation of air hunger. So you went from zero to 100. It's too much. Let's go from zero to 20. And let's adapt to that and then to 25 and to 30 and to 40 because, you know, it's really worth if you're a recreational athlete, just going a little bit slower and allowing your nose to determine the pace because you have to ask, what does your nose do that your mouth doesn't do? Your mouth does nothing. Your mouth is a hole. And I know that's being crude, but maybe that's what kind of reinforces the message. And any of anybody listening that's waking up with a dry mouth in the morning, you are not waking up feeling refreshed. 
And for me, sleep is absolutely vital and sleep and breathing go together, but also in terms of mental health. But on the positive side, mental performance, the ability to hold attention, regardless of whatever is happening, that capacity to be able to enter the flow states. Can we really enter flow states whereby our attention is moving simultaneously with time? The right action is happening by itself. It's effortless. And can we enter flow states if our physiology is in an increased stress response and if we have poor sleep? So you're talking about waking up with a dry mouth. How do you suggest somebody changes from mouth breathing to nose breathing during sleep? Is it the same taping method that James Nestor advocates? We started taping the mouths 25 years ago. What sort of tape are you using? We use our own tape. I've only the children's one here with me. But I'm going to show it to you anyway. This is myotape. It was developed for the dental and the sleep industry. The problem with taping the mouth straight across, if you cover the lips, especially if somebody is obese or if they have severe sleep apnea, is that you can worsen their sleep apnea. So myotape is a product that we developed ourselves. This is the child's one. I'm stretching it. It surrounds the mouth. It pulls the lips together. Now, we also have an athlete's version. It's a little bit of a bring out the gimp look to it for anyone that's oh, watching. Oh, well, do video. you know what? <laughs> Maybe that's got a better use. I might have, we might have greater sales as a result of that. So you're giving me marketing ideas now, CR. <laughs> Stick a golf ball in your mouth there and you're sorted. <laughs> <laughs> it's an elasticated tape that brings the lips together with elastic tension. Now, this the children's one doesn't work well with a beard, but we're, like we'll be bringing out ones with beards as well. We have one with, for athletes that, that's beige, that's skin colored in terms of. So say, for example, you know, from a safety point of view, but also from a perceived risk point of view, if you covered the lips with a tape, there is a risk. If somebody has drank alcohol, if there's a tummy upset, there's always a small risk there, but it's there all the same. Yeah, I've been using masking tape and I don't know if it's quite strong enough. It does come off. It doesn't stick super well. If your lip, You need to really dry your lips off first before you use the masking tape. I've also experimented with duct tape. Not a good idea because it no, pulls your God, entire no, lip Jesus, off. No. <laughs> your whole lips come off with it in the morning. You're, to, you're talking about a sadomasochist, <laughs> at least with the paper tape. That, at least with the myotape. <laughs> it's a little bit more gentle than that, so it is. But what are the benefits of, assuming we get the tape part right, what are the benefits of taping your mouth at night? Because it sounds bizarre for someone that doesn't know what they're talk, we're talking about here. Deeper sleep, slow wave sleep, better recovery, less having to get up to go to the bathroom during the night, waking up feeling refreshed, not needing as many hours sleep. In this new era of wearables with Whoop and Aura Ring, is this data observable in the wearable data? Yes, consistently, consistently. So moving across to the application of kind of high pressure situations during competition, how does proper breathing help manage stress, anxiety, and maintaining composure in these critical moments in a race or an event? Oh, it's vital. I'll give you an example. I was in a high pressure situation about six weeks ago. Six people in a room interviewing me for one hour and a half, high pressured situation. And before the interview, they left me standing outside the door for seven minutes. They did that on purpose to rattle me. And I felt my heart rate increasing. And the problem with that is that when your heart rate increases, your, your brain is reading that the body is under threat and all the brain wants to do is get you out of the situation. A certain amount of nerves is great, but it's when the nerves get too much, it's a problem. So I was standing outside the door. And of course, this has been filmed. 
And somebody says to me, take a deep breath. And I said, no, I'm not taking a deep breath. And I do my own thing. What did I do? I simply took a soft breath in through my nose and a really slow and relaxed, gentle breath out. And to the outside observer, it was as if nothing was happening. Nobody even knows what I'm doing. But my attention is on my breathing. And with that soft breath in and that really relaxed and slow, gentle breath out, I'm stimulating the vagus nerve to secrete the neurotransmitter acetylcholine to bring down my heart rate. So I brought down my heart rate prior to going into that interview. And when I went in there, I walked in with my attention dispersed throughout my body. I didn't walk in there with my attention stuck in my head. I put the critical mind aside because I wanted to go in there in a flow state. It's the same what I do as if I go out on stage, if I'm talking to a large group of people. So in two weeks time, well, next week I go to Japan. After that, I go down to melting pot, Strava. So it's a little bit like electric picnic. And we have a tent on the ground in the Czech Republic. We have 30 instructors there. And I'm talking to 1,500 people. My routine there is I downregulate first and then I upregulate. So I want to get my autonomic nervous system into balance. And I also, because I'm an introvert, I don't want to be talking to anybody before an event. Now, an extrovert may get energy by talking to people before the event. I know it doesn't suit me. So I will hide and I will hide somewhere and I will close my eyes and I'm just sitting on a chair and I'm bringing my attention inwards. I place my attention on the breath and I slow down everything, but I slow it down to the point of air hunger. That's the key because the air hunger is telling me that carbon dioxide is accumulating in the blood. And then after that, for a period of time, I also use that to regain energy. But after that, then I do a few breath holds to increase blood flow to the brain, to get me out of the relaxation into a stress response. And then I go out there with my attention dispersed throughout the body. Now, how would I do it with an athlete? I would get the athlete to bring this into their warm-up. Warm-up should be done, nose breathing. And then I would get the athlete to, as they're breathing, to breathe nose, to breathe slow, and to breathe low, to actually focus on slowing down the breath and to breathe low with good recruitment of the diaphragm, because this will get them down-regulated. So I have them nose breathing during very light intensity. Then we increase the intensity a little bit with sustained nasal breathing. So over the course of about 10 minutes, No matter what exercise they're doing, they're doing it with nose breathing, slow breathing, low breathing. Slow and low breathing also improves alveolar ventilation. We have to think about warm-up. Warm-up is not about the physical muscles, but warm-up is about the mental state. And warm-up is about getting more oxygen to those working muscles prior to more intense physical exercise. Now, after that, I get them to do two or three easy breath holds. And then I get them to do five strong breath holds because I want to get them into a stress state. And I'm continuously, you know, any person, why go into a race stuck in your head? Do you train your cyclists how to concentrate? And our education should have done it, but hasn't done it. You know, we go through 14 years of formal education. We are trained how to think, but we are not trained how to stop thinking. We are not trained how to self-regulate. And the thing about this, Anthony, is this isn't just for a race. These are the skills that you use in your everyday life because shit happens. And there's something tremendous that you can draw in on the breath. And I will say this, it's the understanding and knowing which exercises suit you. There is a big kind of movement or popularity with hyperventilation and breath holding. But that's the extroverted technique. And there's a place for that. And some people love it. But there is also a role for the introverted technique. That subtle connection. 
that you're bringing your attention out of the mind and onto your breathing and you're changing your breathing patterns where nobody even knows what you're doing. But it is very, very powerful. So breathing, there's quite a variance, you know, not to put breathing into one box. It's a little bit like physical exercise. There's so many different ways to do physical exercise and there's so many different ways to change your breathing patterns. Patrick, I love this conversation. I'm going to link up all your various resources, including books, in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me on the Roadman Podcast. It was a pleasure, Anthony. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.